0: How should we use power? How should we use our power? This is a question that everybody has to reckon with because to one degree or the other, every one of us has power, influence, prominence. Each one of us has power. And this question of how should we use our power, it's not a new question. In fact, those who have followed Jesus have been asking that question from the beginning. Today, we're going to pick that conversation up in Mark chapter 9 as we look to what it means and how we're to use our power. You see, up until this point in time, the disciples had been following Jesus, and they'd watched him do miracles, and they had, been, uh, they had heard his teaching. They'd seen him bring people back from the dead. And then when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am, they said, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one, you're, you're the future king, the one that will usher in the kingdom of God. And they believed that what that meant was that Jesus would, through military or political might, establish his kingdom, that he would bring his kingdom with the sword. And so they were ready to fall in line. But Jesus would do something that was oftentimes frustrating to them. He would pull them aside, and he would say, see, we're going to Jerusalem And while we're there, on the way there, I want to tell you about what's going to happen. I am going to be betrayed into the hands of my enemies. And I will be beaten. And I will be mocked. And I will be crucified. And they will kill me. But three days later, I will rise from the grave. And all of this, on the disciples' ears, it sounded so confusing because their idea, I mean, when they asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They 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 knew, they just knew that what Jesus meant was that he was ready to bring the sword. He was gonna slay all of their enemies and establish his kingdom through military might. And so when they heard him say, uh, We're going to Jerusalem, and I will be betrayed, and I will be turned over into the hands of my enemies, and I will be crucified, and I will die. They must have been so frustrated and confused. What do you mean you're going to die? What do you mean you're going to be betrayed? Certainly, certainly, they must have said to one another. Certainly, this is a metaphor. Certainly, this is just Jesus doing one of those weird teachings again. He can't really mean what he says. And so as they were following Jesus, and, and, and again at this time, Jesus was treated as a rabbi. It would, have been, uh, it would have been taboo for them to walk parallel to their rabbi. And so as Jesus walked ahead, the, the disciples who were closest to him, they would walk uh, just behind him. There was a moment where they had allowed him to get a little bit further ahead because they wanted to have a conversation. And they started debating with one another. Hey, hey, guys, come here. When the kingdom of God finally comes, who among us will be the greatest? Is it you? Is it me? Are you number two and I'm number three? Who will be the greatest? The irony, of course, is Jesus had just shared that he, the greatest, will be crucified and buried. And so they walk, they continue to walk. Finally, they get to where they're going. They're in a house. And Jesus turns to them and says, after their journey, hey guys, um, what were you guys talking about on the way over here? Silence. They knew a spanking was coming. So Jesus said, knowing what they were talking about, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you want to be the first you must be the last and a servant to all. Sure, Jesus, yeah, whatever you say, like we've been sharpening our swords, we're ready for the kingdom of God to come, but you know, whatever you say, I guess that means whoever's gonna be first in line, last in line, when we take over, but seriously, bro, like who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? And so Jesus calls them over and he sits, which is the posture of a teacher in that culture, a teacher who's going to teach now with authority. He calls his disciples in. And as they gather around, he begins to teach them. But something interesting happened. You see, when a rabbi would sit to teach, this was, this was to some degree a sacred moment. Uh, this, was, this was a moment for respect. This was a moment for listening. This was a moment for due diligence. This was a moment, this was not a moment for distractions. This was a moment for the adults to talk. And Jesus did something even more disruptive. He brings in a child, and he stands the child up in front of them all, and then he takes the child into his arms. And he said, anyone who receives one of my little ones, one of these little ones in my name, receives me. And not only me, but also the one who has sent me. You want to welcome God, you welcome one of these little ones. Now, of course, in our culture today, we think, well, of course Jesus loved kids. Who doesn't love kids? Everybody, except for people who have kids that keep them up until 3 o'clock at night. And in those darkest hours, people like me say things like, ah! That's not actually a statement. That's just a feeling. But children in the culture that Jesus was speaking to in that moment, outside of the immediate family, children were generally treated as a nuisance. They were treated with, they had no rights. They were literally the least among us. For they had no, uh, they had nothing in and of themselves. If If their family was gone, they were gone. The least of these would have been a child. And so Jesus is not doing this so we all go, oh, look how Jesus loves the little ones. He's making a greater point to his disciples and they catch it. Some of us may remember that scene where people start bringing children to Jesus and the disciples start running interference. No, don't bring the children to Jesus. Why? They're marginalized, they're outcasts, they're nobodies. And here now Jesus, seated, teaching his disciples, holds a child in his arms and says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must be the least and a servant to all. A servant to whom? I'm glad you asked. To people like this, the marginalized, the outcast, the least of these. Now John, one of the disciples, he he, he may have been confused, he may have been perplexed, or, or maybe he just didn't have any tact because he blurts out, Jesus, When we were cruising around, I saw this guy, and he was doing miracles in your name, but he's not part of our tribe, so I told him to stop. (laughs) And Jesus says, it is impossible for someone who does a miracle in my name to then talk bad about me. Anyone who's not against us is for us. Don't tell him to stop. And Jesus in that statement broadens the tent stakes beyond his own tribe to say there are those who will do work in my name who don't look like you and don't act like you and don't have preferences like you have preferences. You don't get to decide who's mine. And then he goes back and he brings our attention back to the child and now it's heating up because Jesus says if any one of you, if anyone," causes one of these little ones to stumble or to fall or to fall away. It would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. That's hot fire, friends. That's what that is, right? You think m and has got some, some fresh beats? How about that? Here it goes. Let's push it even further. He continues. says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better to enter into heaven maimed than into hell whole. If your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It would be better to enter heaven and eternal life with one leg than to enter hell whole. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than into hell whole. Why is Jesus talking like this? Why is he so intense right now? Can we agree that if you were seated there listening to Jesus teaching, that you would say things like, I'm uncomfortable right now? I mean, you think you're uncomfortable with me just reading it. I'm a nice fellow, okay? I've got a likable face. Everyone agrees, right? The beard definitely takes the edge off. And I'm saying this, and you're nervous. I'm saying it. I know what I'm about to say, and I'm nervous. So why is Jesus saying, I mean, if you were there, you'd be like, this is insane. This is serious business. Why? Why? because Jesus cares how we use our power. How will you use your power? What we're gonna do with the remainder of our time together is we're gonna go back through the text, we'll tease out some of the points, see how that doesn't apply to our lives. The first question that you'll find, remember the disciples as they were following behind Jesus, and this is all in Mark chapter nine. The disciples are following behind Jesus, and in verse 34, You pick them up and it's that scene where Jesus is walking ahead of them and they're all back behind Jesus. And what were they arguing about? Who is the greatest? Who's the greatest, right? Who's the greatest among us? Who will be the greatest in your kingdom? Who's the boss? Now for many of us, we look back and say, how foolish of them to think that God would give them power To build up their own kingdom? Don't they know about the cross? Now, we may say that. We may also not live that. Let's have a little fun. And when I say fun, I don't mean fun, (laughs) I mean self examination and possibly conviction. That's not my job, that's the Spirit's job. I'm just gonna have a conversation. By the way, when I say conversation, I'm a preacher, I mean monologue. Business. There are many of us who this weekend, or maybe last week, were plotting and planning on how to undermine a coworker or a leader so that we might gain prominence at their expense. There's an email that was drafted, there's a, a meeting that was set with a superior, there's a name on a piece of paper that will make me look good so that I can elevate my place and make them look bad. Oh, oh, we might look down on the disciples saying, how is it that you could be arguing who would be the greatest? Don't you see the cross? And yet, in our workplaces, it may well be that we fall into the same trap. How will you use your power? Let me ask it to you this way. What would it look like for you to apply The cross to the way that you use power in your job. What would it look like for you to apply the cross to the way that you use power in your career? There is a minister in New York. He gives this. uh, He he tells this story. A woman comes up to him after the service, and she says, "Uh, "I'm not a Christian. I don't usually go to church, but I'm here because of one of your parishioners." And he says. Uh-oh, <laughs> right? Like, is, is, what's, what's, what's the problem? No, no, no problem. I'm here because something happened. You see, I work in the, in the news industry. I work for one of the news agencies, and, and a few months ago, I made a huge mistake. I made a career-ending mistake. And I didn't mean to do it. It happened, but it was my mistake, and I just knew I was gonna get fired. I should have been fired. It was such a blatant error. And so I went to my boss, your parishioner, and I laid it out for him. And he said, okay, thank you. And I was expecting to be fired by the end of the day, but nothing happened. And then the next day, nothing happened. And then the third day, nothing. Fourth day, nothing. End of the week, nothing. And so she started asking around, and she found out that her boss had gone to his superiors and said, I made a mistake. This is on me. And he took the blame and the derision and the guilt that was heaped upon him by his bosses. So she found out about this. So she goes to him. Hey, what are you doing? That was my fault, she says. He says, Don't worry about it. I had the social capital with these guys. I've got this. Don't worry. You're doing a good job over here. I know you didn't mean to do it. You just go, you do your job. Love what you're doing. Keep up the good work. No, 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 that's not good enough. I have to know why in this industry, we don't do that. I have worked at other places for other bosses. And anytime something like this would happen, they would would not blink to throw me under the bus. Why did you do it? Don't worry about it. I've got you. I just don't worry about it. It's no big deal for me to take on that pain. No, why did you do it? He said, I'm only telling me this because you're pressing me. I'm a Christian. And I believe that the central story of the universe is a God taking on flesh and dying for his enemies. Taking on the guilt, taking on the blame that was due me so that I could find life and flourishing. And I try to live that out every day that I lead in this organization. I strive to always take on more pain than I inflict as a leader. There are times where I have to inflict pain, but I strive to take on more pain than I inflict. And she told the minister, I don't know what that's all about, but I'd like to. How would you apply the cross to your career? What might that look like? Jesus is beckoning us to apply it. You know, there's other arenas in which power can be grabbed, where things can be manipulated so people can get power to elevate themselves over others. And this may come as a shock to you, but in politics this happens. I know, everyone gasped, I I know. Hasn't ever happened before, but recently, maybe somebody in the political realm has leveraged their power so that they can gain more power and influence at the expense of others. Now, I wanna say this, all joking aside, there are some of us here who work in government. And I wanna tell you, thank you so much for the work that you do. We, as a community, as a city, as a county, as a state, and as a nation, desperately need people who pursue righteousness to be leading in positions within our government. We absolutely need that. And I am sorry for the times that I have basically dumped on your job. You know, don't you, that there are peers and other people in your sphere that will leverage power for their own gain, regardless of the good or evil involved. You know that, right? And most of us don't work in government, but there are many of us who are feeding the beast. Isn't it quiet? Why are we nervous when pastor brings up politics? Is something going on in the world today that would make us nervous about talking about politics in church? Let me, let me just say this. If we can't sigh and laugh uh, about some of the things that are going on, and I'm not saying we laugh about everything, but if we can't be at peace, then we may not fully understand the fact that it's the kingdom of God that reigns eternal, not the current nation. Like, you guys with me on that? Like, 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 like listen. Uh Christians of all people should be able to peaceably approach opposing arguments without throwing the other person under the bus. Christians among all people should recognize all ground is equal at the foot of the cross. Christians among all people, disciples of Jesus among all people, should recognize that true power rests not in an office but in a king. And so we can be at peace. Now, I want to say this, chickity chickity check. I firmly believe based on the scriptures that Jesus does call us to use our power, which occasionally looks like a vote or a voice for the benefit of others. So I'm not saying Christians should never be involved in politics by by no means. In fact, in a democratic republic, for those of us that are citizens of this nation in a democratic republic, I believe that you have a personal stewardship and responsibility to be involved and to engage your mind and your heart and your prayer life because politics isn't just politics. Politics directly affects people. You know that. Look at any corrupt government around the world today. Does politics impact people? Politics often, if not always, impacts the little ones that Jesus is talking about here. And so we should be engaged. But I want to say this as well. Uh, Oh boy. Christians should be involved. Whatever nation that Christian is a part of, recognizing that they are citizens of the kingdom of God first and citizens of that nation second. But the big C church or the organized church, when it tethers itself to a party or power broker, you look through the corridors of history, the church always becomes corrupt and the message becomes more about winning than it does about Jesus. And as your pastor, I am gravely concerned that we are tempted to fall into the, the temptation to leverage our power as a people group to see certain things happen in a nation politically. That's very dangerous for the church. And so I am praying frequently for us as a church family, that we might be engaged in our community in Christ-centered ways, striving to use the power that God's given to us to serve as he would have us to serve. But all of that is relatively, notice what I just said, relatively comfortable for us to talk about and think about when we start talking about our homes. How do we use our power in our homes? For those of us that are married, how do we use our power in our Marriages For those of us with kids, how do we use our power with our kids? For those of us who have parents, how do we use our power with our parents? You see, there is a temptation within the family settings to um, keep a record of wrongs. And then every time we want to manipulate or leverage, we go over to the record player, we turn up the volume real loud, and we play the record of wrongs. How many of you have ever heard The record of wrongs. I have heard the record of wrongs. Perhaps you have as well. The record of wrongs is when we begin to use past failures, past sins, to hurt, to abuse, and to manipulate. When we're in familial relationships with one another, we have power, and much of that power has to do with our knowledge of who that person is. And we can choose to use that to elevate and point to Jesus, or we can choose to use it to destroy. Let me talk about marriage for a minute. When Jesus, when the scriptures, excuse me, when the scriptures talk about marriage, it talks like this. That your love for one another should look like a cross. How should a husband and wife love one another? Self-sacrificially. Now, I want to, and you need to hear me on this. That does not mean there's no accountability. That does not mean I let the other person do whatever they want, especially in cases of abuse, and abandonment, there needs to be healing and space, but the way that we love should be self-sacrificial. Uh, you know why people get married, don't you? everyone's like, this is a trick question. I see this coming. Now, nah, you guys know me pretty well. You guys know me pretty well. It is a trick question. You guys know why people get married? I do that. Every time I meet with a couple, I'll ask them, you know, they're, here's this couple, they're, they're about to get married. Oh my goodness, they're so, mm, they're in love, you know, and, and everything's wonderful in their life. And I'll say, hey, why do you want to get married? And, and what do you think oftentimes people will say? Because we're in love. And you know what I always say? That's a stupid reason to get married. It's absolutely dumb reason to get married. If, if getting married is simply an expression of your love to one another, then don't do it. You don't need marriage, baby. You don't need it. You're just gonna be in love. Why do people get married? Well, we get married because there's gonna come a day where we wake up and we do not love. Where we look at the other person and they're the last thing we wanna see in the universe. And marriage is a covenant, a chaining of ourselves together to say, not if, but when that day comes, I'm going stay and we're going to work through this. You've ever heard of the old ball and chain? I love that metaphor. Because if marriage is simply about me expressing my love for you, the minute you become unlovely to me is the minute I give up on our marriage. How do we use our power in our workplace, in our community, and in our home? What would it look like for you to apply the cross to the power that you have in your workplace, in your community, or in your home? Who is the greatest among us? He who is least, she who is least, and servant to all. Now, in verse 37, Jesus picks it up. Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. Remember, he's there. The scene is, is he's seated and he's teaching. He's got the child in his hands. Whoever would welcome one of these, one of these little ones of mine welcomes me. What would it look like for you to welcome the marginalized, the outcast, The abandoned, abused, and betrayed. What would it look like for you to welcome in one of these little ones in the way that Jesus is teaching here? To use your power and your prominence and your influence to welcome in the little ones. In a corollary text in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' infamous, infamous text, Jesus says, to the righteous, I was naked and you clothed me, I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a prisoner and you visited me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And the righteous said to Jesus, Lord, when? When were you hungry and we gave you meat? When was it that you were thirsty and we gave you drink? Lord, when was it that you were a prisoner and we visited you? Lord, when was it that you were a stranger and we welcomed you in? And Jesus responded to them, whenever you have done this to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done so unto me. What would it look like for you to use your power, your time, your energy, your resources to welcome in one of these little ones. As a church family, this is something that we strive to disciple and to train and to equip towards. Uh, In fact, uh, we could put it up on the screen. Uh, As a church family, if you go out to the lobby on the left-hand side, you'll see an image that looks like this up on the screen. Uh, It uh, is uh, just some uh, suggestions for us as it relates to discipleship. What does it look like for you to take your next step in following Jesus? And you'll you'll notice there at the top, in the center of the top, you'll see a hand with a heart on it, compassionate service. I want to encourage you. Uh, Our Love Our Schools Day is something that's citywide. It's something we're doing with a bunch of different churches in our region and we're serving a handful of schools. We would love to have you join us on October 20th that morning as we go into the community and serve some of these under-resourced schools. You heard uh, Elizabeth in the video a moment ago. What a great opportunity to put into practice what Jesus is calling us to, to literally serve and welcome little children. And I encourage you to take part in that. And again, you can visit the lobby for more details. And Jesus uh, continues on. Remember John? John interrupts, and he says, Jesus, we saw this guy. He was doing miracles in your name, and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. You remember what Jesus says to him? He says, if he was doing it in my name, it's impossible for him then to speak against me. Moreover, John you don't get to pick who's in. You don't get to pick who's on team Jesus. Just because he doesn't look like you, doesn't act like you, doesn't have your same preferences, you don't get to pick. In fact, Jesus is the one who defines and decides who are his, not you and not me. So if you're uh, not a Christian, maybe you're still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. Listen, I'm gonna yell at the Christians for a minute, okay? Okay. Christians, I'm gonna yell at you for a minute, okay? Okay? Okay, here we go. I'm not actually going to yell. I'm just going to use tonal inflection to make serious points. Okay, here we go. Uh, How many of you live, uh, drove about more than a mile to uh, arrive at this campus here this morning? More than a mile. Let's have a look. Great. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask you a trick question. Um, Did you drive past another church today? Oh, got you. Yeah, I told you even at the head of the time it's a trick question. Remember? Uh, Now, church, what's church? Well, that's the people that follow after Jesus. So like theologically, there's only what? One church. So did you drive past another church on your way uh, here today? No. What you probably drove past, I know there's some confusion to the matter. What you probably drove past was the church in a smaller setting meeting at another piece of property. Is that what you drove past today? Yeah. Now, why am I being coy? And why am I leaning into this? Because one of the greatest temptations that a local church family has is to garner power and prominence and then use that to dump on or belittle or undermine the work of God in other local church families. As a church family, we are committed to seeing the growth of the church, not just Desert Springs, but Jesus Christ church in Phoenix and around the world. Over the last 12 years, we've seen more than three churches planted out of our campus. I'd love to see that happen more and more. There's over 250,000 people in a five-mile radius of this campus, and every local church that currently exists and that Jesus will plant is the best possible hope for some of those people to see Christ in community. And so when another church grows, when another church wins, when another church excels, when another local church family uh, exceeds, excels, we don't say, why not us? We say, praise be to God for he's building his church. And when another local church, maybe, maybe a church is planted just up the street, Harvest Bible Church just moved into the neighborhood a few years ago, and they moved in right about a mile and a half, Heritage Bible Church planted out of this campus. They're three miles up the street. I've had people say, aren't you nervous about the competition? Baby, the competition is Satan and the idolatry that he's embedded in our culture, not the local church. Jesus points to that here. Now, just in the last few minutes, I wanna ease into this next piece. Hmm. I'm gonna ask that on October 28th, you would make an intentional decision to be here at 9.30 or 11. October 28th, 9.30 or 11. I believe that Jesus is doing something in our church family. He's calling us to something. I don't know what that is. I don't know that you know what that is. And the way that we're gonna find out is through prayer. And so on October 28th, I'm gonna ask you to make an intentional decision to be here. It's a day that you don't wanna miss. Because there are many people who have been abused by power brokers and who are turned off against the church. There are those who have leveraged power to hurt and betray who need to experience the grace of God. This is why Jesus is so vibrant in his language Whoever, verse 42, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Why is Jesus speaking so powerfully here? Did you notice what he says? If something tempts you to go in this way, this unrighteous path, this unrighteous pursuit of unrighteous power, if anything tempts you in that direction, cut it off. He's intentionally using hyperbole. Jesus is not here talking about dismemberment. He's talking about taking intentional action to guard your heart and to pursue righteousness. Better to get rid of that career if it causes you to leverage power against other people. Better to give up that position if it causes you to leverage that power to hurt others. Do not put yourself in a position where you cause any one of these little ones to fall away. Can you imagine? Jesus is literally, he's seated, he's teaching, he's holding this child in his arms and he's speaking Words, direct words to whom? Who's he talking to? Who's in the circle listening to him? Those closest to him. Because it is oftentimes those closest to him who fall into the temptation of using their God-given power to hurt. And so he says, watch out, take action. Do you treat the power that God's given you with the severity of this text? Do you think of the abuse of power in your own life in the same way that Jesus thinks of it here? How will you use power? More than that, in light of this text, who among us can stand innocent? Who among us has not leveraged power and influence and prominence to gain a leg up at the expense of others? Who among us has not leveraged our power and our influence to hurt? So what are we to do? Jesus tells us where the hope lies in verse 30. You remember we started. Jesus said, my kingdom doesn't come with swords and spears. It comes with nails and wood. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Friends, for those of us that are still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, maybe there are some of us here today who have been abused or hurt by a religious leader and you're just wondering, is Jesus real or is it just a power play? Friends, this text, Jesus himself screams at you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. There is healing at the table of the Lord. And that invitation does not excuse the abuses done to you. There are still others of us who have power, but we haven't yet fully thought through or prayed through how the cross applies to our power. And so for both of you, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. In a moment, we're gonna ask that the lights be dropped low and a text is gonna be read from the ending of the Gospel of Mark. And I'm gonna ask you to reflect on these words. At the conclusion of the reading, we'll bring the lights back up a little bit and we're gonna pass bread and juice and we're gonna partake of communion. This is an act, this is a a sacrament that we engage in to remember the broken body and shed blood for Jesus. And so I'm gonna ask here in a moment that you would reflect on the words of scripture. Consider how that applies to the power in your own life. What Jesus is speaking to you right now and then we're gonna share in communion together. After the host pass, I'm gonna ask that you would hold on to those elements and we'll take together as a church family.